Welcome back, I'm Brainiacs, to the pod. No comment on chapter 4, we keep reading. Chapter 5. The fire was now burning brightly and I recalled my memories one by one until the three months we had spent in the studio became visible. The first week my drawing was no worse than Lewis's. Indeed it was rather better, but the second week we he had outstripped me and whatever talent I had, the long hours in the studio wore it away rapidly and the one day, horrified at the black thing in front of me, I laid down my pencil saying to myself I will never take up a pencil or brush again and slunk away out of the studio home to the glary fedu, to the room above the umbrella shop, to my bed, my amore de glaze, my half dozen chairs and on that bed and under its green curtains I lay all night weeping saying to myself my life is ended and done, there is no hope for me, all I wanted was art and art had been taken from me, just si fichu fichu bien fichu I repeated and the steps of the occasional passerby echoed mournfully under the glass roof. The Galerie Fedeau had never seemed a cheerful place to live in. It was now as hateful to me as a prison, and Lewis was my jailer. He went away every morning at eight o'clock, and I met him at breakfast in the little restaurant at the end of the Galerie Fedeau. After breakfast, he returned to the studio, and I was free to wander about the streets or to sit in my room reading Shelley. He came home about five. He went for a walk and told me that what was happening in the studio, everything that happened seemed to be for his greater honour and glory. He had won the medal and the hundred francs that Julian offered every month for his best drawing. An innovation this was to attract custom, and a little spree had to be given to commemorate his triumph. He organised a spree very well, of course. It was my money that paid for it. And the best part of the studio came to the gallery photo one evening. And we sang and smoked and drank punch and played the piano. Lewis played the violin. And Julian, drawing his chair up to mine, told me that in ten years hence, Lewis would be au concours in the salon, and living in a great hotel in the Champs-Élysées, painting pictures at 30,000 francs apiece. Le Grandes Tartines, we used to call the pictures that went to the salon, or Les Grandes Machines. I am forgetting my studio slang. Julian had a difficult part to play. If he were to depreciate Lewis's talent, I might throw up the sponge and go away. He thought it safer to assure me that my sacrifices were not made in vain, but much, but man is such a selfish and jealous animal that it had begun to seem to me I would prefer a great failure for Lewis to a great success. Not a great failure, I said to myself, for if he had failed, I shall never get rid of him. There will be no escape from the gallery photo for me, so I must hope for his success. He will leave me when he begins to make money. When will that be? And the cruel thought crossed my mind that he had laughing he was laughing at me all the while looking upon me as the springboard wherefrom he would jump into great salon success it seemed to me that i could see us both in the years ahead myself humble and obscure he great and glorious looking down upon me somewhat kindly as the lion looks upon the mouse that he has gnawed the cords that bound him i think i was unhappy in the gallery for doe as i had been in oscott college i seemed to have lost everything in the world except the one person i wished to lose Lewis. I was a stranger in the studio where I sent, went to Seldom, for everyone there knew of my failure, even the models I feared to invite to my rooms, lest they should tell tales afterwards. At last the thought came of my sister's school friend, and of at her home I met people who knew nothing of Julian, and l'école de beaux arts. And at a public dinner, I was introduced to John O'Leary and his Parisian circle, and all these people were interested in me on account of my father. One can always pick one's way into society, and three months later, I was moving in American and English society about the place Wagram and the boulevard Melashrebs, returning home in the early morning, awaking Lewis frequently to describe the party to him, awaking him one morning to tell him that a lady whose boots I was buttoning in the vestibule had leaned over me and whispered that I could go to the very bottom, very button, if I liked. A very pretty answer it had seemed to Lewis, and it was clear that he was affected by it, though he resisted for a long time my efforts to persuade him to allow me to introduce him to my friends. I had intended only on outing an exhibition of my cousin, after which he was to return to his kennel, but I interrupted his life, and fatally, invitations came to him from every side. He accepted them all, and we started to learn the Boston before the Amoy de Glace. 
He learned it quicker than I did, and when he returned from Barbizon, whither he had gone to meet the wife of an American millionaire, I told him I could live no longer in the Galerie Ferdo, and was going away to Boulogne to meet some people whom I had met at Madame Ratazzi's, into whose circle I had happily not introduced him, and wishing to take him down a peg, I mentioned that I had acted with her in La Dame aux Camélias. He flew into a violent rage. I was going away with swagger friends to enjoy myself, careless whether he ate or starved. He was right from this point of view. I was breaking my promise to him, but is there anybody who would be able to say he would not have broken his in the same circumstances? None. It was at once a shameful and natural act. He was my friend. It was shameful. It was horrible, but there are shameful and horrible things in other lives beside mine. His presence had become unendurable, but why excuse himself further? Let the facts speak for themselves, and let me be judged by them. They have already been published in the Confessions of a Young Man, but I wonder now if I told in that book enough of the surprise that I experienced on finding him still in that apartment, in the Galerie Ferdot, when I returned from Boulogne. He should have moved out of my rooms after the quarrel, but instead of that he had converted the sitting room into a workshop, and his designs for lace curtains occupied one entire wall. He'll go tomorrow, of course, I said, but he did not go on the morrow or the day after, and at the end of the week he was still there and annoying me by whistling as he worked on his design. At last, unable to bear it any longer, I opened the door of my bedroom and begged him to cease. And it is to this day a marvel to me how he restrained himself from strangling me. He looked as if he were going to rush at me, and on the threshold of my room I indulged in the most fearful vituperation of an abuse, to which I felt it would be wiser not to attempt an answer, for his arms were long and his fists were heavy. He was always talking about striking out, and at his, and it is foolish to engage in combat when one knows one is going to be get the worst of it. So I just let him shout on until he retired to his lace curtains and I resolved to give notice. He can't stay after quarter day. But the quarter day was a long way off and every day I met him in the Passage des Panoramas among my friends flowing away in the new Ulster, past the jet ornaments and the fans, a splendid fellow he certainly was, with his broken nose and his grand eyes, and the Ulster suit suited him so well that I began to regret a quarrel which prevented me from asking him questions about it. He came and went as he pleased, passing me on the staircase and in the rooms, his splendid indifference compelling the conclusion that however lacking in character a reconciliation would prove to be, I could no longer forego one, and after many hesitations I called him after him and begged that he would allow bygones to be bygones. I think that he said this was impossible. He must have been counting on my weakness. <clears throat> he must have been counting on my weakness. However, this may be he played with me very prettily, forcing me to plead practically to ask forgiveness, and when we were friends again, he related that he was looking out for a studio, and in the effusion of reconciliation, I very foolishly asked him to tell me if he would should happen upon my apartment that he thought would suit me. For live another quarter in the Grand Louis Ferdo, I could not. He promised that he would not fail to keep his eyes open, and a few days after he mentioned that he had seen a charming apartment in the Rue de la Tour de Mardames, the very thing that would suit me. As there was not nearly enough furniture in the Galerie Ferdot to fill it, he entered into negotiations with the upholsterer and dazzled me with a scheme of decoration which would cost very little to carry out and which would give me as pretty an apartment as any in Paris. He was kind enough to relieve me of all the details of un demanagement, and what could I do in return but invite him to stay with me until he had painted a picture. <clears throat> we had a friend at that time who painted little naked women very badly and sold them very well, and it occurred to Lewis that if Falero could sell his pictures, there was no reason why he should not. So he borrowed a hundred francs from me to hire a model and painted a nymph. But though better drawn than Falero's nymphs, she went the round from picture dealer to picture dealer, never finding a purchaser. Which did not matter much, for Louis began at this time to please a rich widow who lived in Rue Jean Goujon. She was not, however, very generous, refusing always de les mettre dans ses meubles. 
and he continued to live with me, wearing my hats and neckties, borrowing small sums of money, and what was still more annoying, beginning to cultivate a taste for literature, daring even to seek literary advice and help from Bernard de Lopez, a Parisian despite his name, Parisian in this much, that he had written a hundred French plays all in collaboration with the great men of letters of his time, including Dumas, Bonville and Gautier. I had picked up in the Hotel de Russy very soon after my arrival in Paris. He dined there every Monday, an old habit, the origin of this habit he never told me or I have forgotten. A strange habit, it seemed, for anything less literary than the Hotel de Russie, for the matter of that, anything less literary than Bernard de Lopez's appearance, it is impossible to imagine. Two piggy little eyes set on either side of a large, well-shaped nose. Oh, excuse you, Toby. Excuse you. Uh, two little stunted legs that toddled quickly forward to meet me, and two little warm, fat hands that had often held mine too long for comfort. So small a man never had before so large a head, a great bald head with a ring of hair round it, and his chin was difficult to discover under his moustaches. Roll after roll of flesh descended into his bosom, and by God, I can still see in my thoughts his little brown eyes watching me just like a pig. Suspiciously, though, why he should have been suspicious of me, I cannot say, unless indeed he suspected that I doubted the existence of the plays he said he had written in collaboration, a thing which I frequently did, unjustly, for he was telling the truth. He had collaborated with Gautier, Dumas and Bonville, and having assured myself of this by the brochures, I began to think that he could not have been always so trite and commonplace. Men decline like the day, and he was in the evening of his life when I met him, garrulous about the days gone by, and in the Café Madrid, whither I invited him to come with me after dinner at the Hotel de Russie. He told me that Scribe had always said he would like to rewrite La Dame Boulanc, rewrite a piece that has been acted a thousand times, Lopez would gurgle, and then he told me about La Cine Affaire, the morning he had brought Dumas the manuscript for Le Fils de la Nuit, he had said to him, News Arros des Lames. <coughs> he used to speak about a writer called St. George, whose rooms were always heavily scented, and scent gave the little man de mort de tete. There was another man whose name I cannot recall, with whom he had written up many plays, and who had an engagement book like a doctor or a dentist. Qui ne l'empreuve pièce d'avoir beaucoup d'esprit. It pleases me to recall Lopez's very words. They bring back the 70s to me, and my thoughts of the 70s and the intellectual atmosphere in which these men lived, going about their business with comedies and plays in their heads, an appointment at 10 to consider the first act of a vaudeville, after breakfast, another appointment, perhaps at the other end of Paris, to discover a plot for a drama, a talk about an opera, in the cafe at five, and perhaps somebody would call in the evening, no, not in the evening, for they wrote on into the night, tumbling into bed at four, or th three or four in the morning. Of the wonderful seventies, Lopez was <coughs> Le Dernier Regetum, and while Talking about Le Fils de la Nuit, the first play that had ever run 200 nights, we stroll back to his lodging in the Place Pigalle, a large room on the second floor overlooking the place, with a cabinet de toilette. And as time went on, I learned some facts about him. He had been married. And received from his wife the few thousand francs a year on which he lived, and the empire bed with chairs and a toilet table to match must have come from her. He would not have thought of buying them, and still less the two portraits by Angelica Kaufman on either side of the fireplace. A man who had outlived his day, a superficial phrase. For none can say when a man has outlived his day, he had not outlived his. When the managers ceased to produce his plays, for he drew my attention to literature, and it is pleasant to me to remember the day that I hurried down to Galagnani's to buy a play, for one evening, while we talked in the Café Madrid, it had occurred to me 
that with a little arrangement Lewis and Alice would supply me with the subject of a comedy, but never having read a play, I did not know how one looked upon paper. Congreve, Wycherley, Farquhar, and Van Bruch, Lee Hunt's edition, were my first uh, dramatic authors and my first comedy, in imitation of these writers, was composed and written and copied out and read to Bernard de Lopez within six weeks of its inception. His criticism of it was, I thought at first we were going to have a very long, strong play, a man that marries his mistress to his friend, and I understood at once that the subject had been frittered away in endless dialogue after the manner of my exemplars, and it was as likely as not in the hope of getting all this dialogue acted that I returned to England, remaining there some time, writing a long comedy which Lopez did not like. Drama was abandoned for poetry, and Liz... Liz, and sorry, and drama was ab- abandoned for poetry, and Lopez encouraged me to tell him of my poems, advising me as we ascended to the Rue Notre Dame de Lotrette, or the Rue des Matures, to choose subjects that would astonish the British public by their originality. For instance, if instead of in Dighting a sonnet to my mistress's eyebrows, I were to tell the passion of a toad for a rose. Not that, of course, not that, but poems on violent subjects. A young man's love for a beautiful corpse, I interjected. He introduced French poetry to me, and through him I read a great deal that I might not have heard of, and wrote a great deal that I might never have written. And it was to him that I brought my first copy of my first book, Flowers of Passion, together with an article that had appeared in The World entitled... A bestial bard. The article began, The author of these poems should be whipped at the cart's tail while the book is being burnt in the marketplace by the common hangman. It filled the greater part of a column, and the note struck by Edmund Yates was taken up by other critics, and much impressed by the violence of their language, Lopez said, They seem to have exhausted their vocabulary of abuse upon you. And he began to sound me, Regarding the possibility of an English and a French author writing a play together for the English stage, Martin Luther seemed to us a character that would suit Irving, then at the height of his fame. But shall we present both sides of the question impartially like Goethe, or shall we write as ardent Protestants? As ardent Protestants, I answered. Lopez acquiesced, and one day when I called to discuss a certain scene between Catherine Bora and Luther with my collaborator, I came upon Lewis reading a sonnet to him always trusting, thrusting himself into my life, are the words that will let the reader into the secret of any of my annoyance. He rose abashed, and the sight of Louis abashed was a novel one. Lopez continued to explain, Monsieur, monsieur, c'est pas French. C'est le more French, Louis said, and he bundled up his papers, adding, you have come to talk to Martin Luther, so I'll leave you. But what right does he come inter- interrupting you? He only came to show me a sonnet. But what the devil does he want to write sonnets for? Isn't it enough that he should paint bad pictures? He merely came to inquire about the prosody of a certain line, Lopez answered. And he tried to calm me. No, there's no use, Lopez. I can't fix my thoughts. Perhaps after dinner, what do you say to the rat mort? He raised no objection to the rat mort, but the moment we entered the cafe, he rushed up to the disheveled and wild-eyed fellow... I thought I had lost him. Let me introduce you, he said, to Villiers d'Isil Adam. Lewis was forgotten in the excitement of dining with a real man of letters, in the pleasure of confiding to Villiers the scene that I had come to talk to Lopez about. It is to Martin Luther himself, I said, whom she has never seen, that she confesses in a wood her love of Martin Luther. I must introduce you to Malarme, said Villiers, and he wrote a note on the edge of the table. You find him at home on Tuesday evenings. Malame spoke to me of Manet, and he must have spoken to Manet about me, for one night in the Nouvelle Athens, Manet asked me if the conversation distracted my attention from my proofs. Come and see me in my studio in the Rue d'Amsterdam. And not very many evenings later, Mendez was introduced to me between one and two in the morning. He asked me to the Rue Mansard, where he lived with Mademoiselle Holmes. Wherefore, before I had time to realise the fact, I was launched on Parisian literary and artistic society, and six months afterwards Manet said to me, 
There is no Frenchman in England who occupies the position you do in Paris. Perhaps there isn't, I answered mechanically, my thoughts for turning to Lewis, who was certainly going down in the world. I should have been done better to have left him in the Montrouge to get his living as a workman, for he will never be able to scrape together any sort of living as a painter, and my spirits rose mountains high against him. An old man from the sea, I said, whom I cannot shake off. But the courage to fling him into the street was lacking, and I continued to bear with him day after day, hoping that he would leave me on of his own accord. He was well enough in Julia's studio, or in the Beaux Arts, or in the English and American society, but he would seem shallow and superficial in the Vue Athens, and I always avoided taking him there. And I always avoided taking him there. But one night he asked me to help to to tell him where I was dining, and I had to tell him at the Nouveau Athens. He pleaded to be allowed to accompany me, and I will admit to some vanity on my part, or was it curiosity that prompted me to introduce him to Dagus, who very graciously invited us to sit at his table and talk to us of his art, addressing himself as often to Lewis as he did to me. He opened his whole mind to us, beguiled by Lewis's excellent listenings, until the waiter brought him a dish of almonds and raisins. Then a lull came, and Lewis said, leaning across the table, I think, Monsieur Degas, you will agree with me that more than any other artist among us, Jules Lefebvre sums up all the qualities that an artist should possess. My heart misgave me, and Degas's laughter did not console me, nor his words whispered in my ear as he left French stuff. And a few days afterwards, in the Rue Pigalle, he said, French stuff. I returned, French stuff, French stuff, French stuff. But no explanation pleased Degas as much as his own, French stuff. I resisted this explanation till feeling that I was beginning to show myself in a stupid light, I accepted it outwardly, though convinced inly that Lewis had been guilty of the unpardonable sin, lack of comprehension. He must go, and at once, as soon as I returned home, I begged him to leave me at the end of the month when my mother sends me my money, he answered, and my heart sank at the thought of having him with me so long. I think I must have answered, for God's sake, go, and a few days afterwards the concierge mentioned, to my great surprise, that Monsieur Hawkins had left and had paid her the few francs he owed her. A good trait on his part, I thought, and my heart softened towards him suddenly and continued soft until a lady told me that Monsieur Hawkins had been to see her and had borrowed a hundred francs from her. I didn't dare refuse, she said, but I thought it rather mean of him to come and ask me for money. We sat looking at each other, the lady thinking no doubt that I should not have told Lewis that I was her lover, and myself thinking that I had at length caught Lewis in deliberate blackmail, and going round the studio in which he had settled himself, I said, before looking round the walls to, to admire the sketches, I have just come from Miss Dash, and she tells me you borrowed a hundred francs from her. If I did, you borrowed from Alice Howard, my mistress, he answered. I had forgotten and sat dumbfounded, but... Why had I borrowed this money? I never wanted for money, perhaps to put Alice to the test or to get back some of my own, for she had borrowed often from me, and finding her in affluent circumstances, she asked me some days after to repay her, and I gave her the money that was in my pockets, a hundred francs, the other hundred I forgot all about till one evening at Alphonsine's. I saw her rise up from her place and walk towards me, a vindictive look round her mouth and eyes. Have you come, she said, to pay, pay me the money that you owe me? <clears throat> Excuse me. To admit that I had borrowed money from Alice at Alphonsine's was impossible. Lies happen very seldom in my life, but they have happened. And this was an occasion when a lie was necessary, but I lied badly from lack of habit. And Lewis had heard from the women there that I had not stood up to Alice. And now to pass off the matter in which I had come to speak to him, I asked him how I should have answered Alice. You should have answered her ironically. French stuff. Splendid, I cried. French stuff. You have French stuff, but any wit I have is French stuff. French stuff. Patter always excites my admiration. We get back to origins, to the monkey. And looking around the studio, the number of sketches that I saw everywhere in oil and water put watercolour put the thought into my mind that Lewis must have discovered a patron and was living as comfortably as he had ever done with me. So all my sacrifices were in vain, I said to myself, and aloud to him, you are doing a great deal of work. I have discovered a patron, he answered, 
and he told me of an old man living in a barred house in a distant suburb who never opened his door except to a certain ring, an old man in gold-rimmed spectacles who would buy any drawing that Lewis brought him at a price, 30 francs for a flower in a vase, for an apple, a pear, for a street corner, for a head sketched in ten minutes. Here's your banker, I said. Yes, it's just like cashing a cheque. And I left the studio hoping that the old man who looked at Lewis's drawings through gold room spectacles would live for many a year. His death would certainly bring back Lewis to me, asking for fifty, for a hundred francs. And if I could not lend him so much, he would ask for twenty. And if I could not manage twenty, he would ask for ten. And if I could not manage ten, he would ask for five, perhaps coming down to the price of his omnibus home. But the old man continued in the flesh, and weeks and months passed away without my seeing or hearing from Lewis. Years must have gone by before we met at Barbizon, whither he had gone intent upon investing all his savings on a salon picture. An old graveyard full of lush, of the lush of June had taken his fancy, and after many sketches, he was still certain that he had hit on a good subject for a picture. The critic pointed out that two children looking at a gravestone would balance the composition. Another said that a yellow cat coming from the cottages along the wall would complete it. Both were right. All that now remained for Lewis to do was to paint the picture, but he lacked touch, and his picture would have remained very tiny if Stott of Oldham had not arrived at Barbizon suddenly. You mustn't rub the paint like that. See here, and taking the brush from Lewis's hand, he mixed a tone and drew the brush slowly from right to left. Almost at once, the paint began to look less like tin, and Lewis said, I think I understand, and he was able to imitate Scott sufficiently well to produce a picture which Borgero said would attract attention in the salon if the title were changed to Le Duc Orpheline. L'amour René de Cis Cendres is not a title that will appeal to the general public. Lewis tried to explain that what he meant was that the love of the parents is born again in their children, but he allowed Bougerou's good sense to prevail, and the picture drew from Albert Wolfe, an enthusiastic notice of nearly half a column in Figaro, after which it became the fashion to go to the salon to see Le Du Orphelin and Monsieur Hawkins, Un June Pentry Anglaise de Bucou de Talon. For Lewis could not separate himself from his picture, and every day he grew bolder, receiving his friends in front of it and explaining to them and to all and sundry the second title, L'Amour René de Cessandres. Conduct was not very dignified, but he had been waiting so long for recognition of his talent that he could not restrain himself. He sold Les Orphelins for 10,000 francs, and next year the salon was filled with imitations of it, and there was a moment when it seemed that Julian's prophecy was about to come true, that Hotel in Champs-Élysées was being sought for when Lewis's first patron, the old man to whom he had sold his sketches for 25 or 30 francs apiece, died suddenly, and for nearly two years, Wilde and Hawkinses were being knocked down at the Hotel de Vente for 50 and 100 francs apiece. 1,500 or 2,000 pictures thrown upon the market was no doubt a misfortune, I said as I stirred the fire, but if Lewis had been a man of healthy talent, he would have painted other pictures. But his talent was the talent of un de truc, and a recollection of a naked man looking at a naked woman through a mask was remembered. The hereditary's taint was always there, I said. I began to turn over in my mind all that Lewis had told me about his father. My father left Mama some three or four years after their marriage. I think I was twenty before I ever saw him. I was given an address of a lodging house in St. James's and found my father in a small back room sitting on a bed playing the flute. Oh, is that you, Lewis? Just a moment. Lewis had heard from his mother many stories of his father's eccentricities, and he had an opportunity of verifying these in St. James's Street, for when the elder Hawkins laid aside his flute and engaged in perfunctory conversation with his son, he allowed a fly to crawl over his face. Every moment Lewis expected his father to brush the insect away. It had been around one eye several times and had descended the nose and was about to go up the eye once again when Lewis, 
who could contain himself no longer, cried out, Father, that fly. Pray don't disturb it. I like the sensation. My thoughts passed from Lewis to Jim, and I sat for a long time asking myself if Jim would have succeeded better than Lewis if he had gone to Paris in the 50s. He had more talent than Lewis, but his talent seems still less capable of cultivation. There is a lot of talent in Ireland, but whether any of it is capable of cultivation is a question if another one can <clears throat> excuse me, ponder for days. And my thoughts breaking away suddenly remembered how soon after my return from Ireland when I had settled in Cecil Street in the Strand and was keep trying to make my living by waiting for the papers of the desire to see Jim again in the old station of the Prince's Garden had come upon me, and I had gone away one night in a cab in Kensington, but the appearance of the footman who opened the door surprised me, and I asked myself if Jim had sold some pictures or had let the house. He had sold the house, and any letters that came from him were sent to Arthur's Club, where I could obtain news of him. The porter told me that any letter would be forwarded, but I wanted to see Jim that very night, and addressing myself to the secretary of the club, who happened to be passing through the hall at that moment, I begged of him to authorise the porter to give me Mr. Brown's address, which he did, and I went away in the cab, certain at the end of the drive would bring me face-to-face with the old boon companion. The cab turned out of Baker Street, and we were soon in Park Road, driving between Regent's Park with a high wall with doors left into it. Before one of these, the handsome stopped and I was I saw a two-story house standing in the midst of a square plot. A maid servant took me up a paved pathway, mentioning that Mr. Brown was on the drawing room floor, and I found him waiting expectant in his smock, a palette and a sheaf of brushes in his left hand, the thumb of his right hand in his leather belt. My dear Jim, I've been to Prince's Gardens. We sold the house, and Pinky and Ada have gone to live with friends and relations. There was a feeling in the room that nobody had called to see him for many a month, and I noticed that a good deal of colour had died out of his thick locks of flaxen hair, and that his throat was wrinkled, and all your pictures, Jim, and your mother was kind enough to hang them up in Alfred Place when we left Prince's Gardens, and when she left the house at the end of her lease, the pictures were taken away, and didn't you? And you didn't make any inquiries? Well, you see, I haven't room for any canvases. The moment had come when I must show some interest in these pictures, and turning from one of on the easel, I picked out one of the rows, hoping that the design might inspire a few words of praise. You must have painted a dozen or twenty times upon it. I don't know how you can work over such a surface, a thick, coagulated scum. Why don't you scrape? Manet always scrapes before painting, and he never loses the freshness. His paint is like cream after twenty repaintings. Jim did not know anything about Manet, nor did he care to hear about Manet, Monet, Sicily, Renoir, and the Nouvelle Athens, and the Literati. He knew nothing of Banville's verification and had not read Goncourt's novel, so I told him that the Catu had thought well of my French sonnet, for having written a drama on the subject of Luther, it was necessary to write a French dedicatory sonnet, and I recited it to Jim to revenge myself upon him for having told me that he knew French as well as English. My landlady's daughter, he said, pointing to a small portrait on the wall, and sometimes afterwards a young girl was he- heard singing on the stairs. There she is. Shall I ask her in? I begged of him to do so, and a somewhat pretty girl with round eyes and a vivacious voice came into the room and chatted with us. But her interest in the fact that Jim was my cousin was a little high-pitched, and it was obvious that she took no interest in his pictures, or indeed any pictures, and it was a relief when she turned to Jim and to ask him if he was staying to dinner. Let us go out together and dine somewhere, I said. Yes, Ask him out to dinner. It will do him good. He hasn't been beyond the garden for weeks. Yes, Jim, we will go up town and dine together. I have no money. But Father will lend you any money you want. It will go down in the... You can settle with Father when you like. She left the room and Jim spoke of the people in whose house he was lodging and a dancing master and his wife and he gave me a mildly sarcastic account of Miss Dash's coming to see him in the morning to tell him that she... He might have to use the parlour for ten shillings extra. My ears retain his voice still saying something about coals and gas not being included, and what tickled his fancy was the way the old lady used to linger about the drawing room trying to draw the conversation onto his sisters, where was Miss Ada living now, and was Miss Pinky still living in the Lord Shaftesbury? He continued talking and moving the canvases about, and I was willing to appreciate the designs if he would only say that he would come out to dinner. At last, he said, You see, I haven't been to my tailor's for a long time, and my wardrobe is in a ragged and station, stained condition. I dare say they'll be able to find some cold beef or cold mutton or a sausage or two in the larder. You don't mind? Of course I don't mind. It was 
for a talk about our old times that I had come, and after the cold meats were returned to the drawing room, Jim showed me all his latest designs, and we discussed them together, mingling our memories of the women who he had known, the names of Alice Half at Annie Temple and Mademoiselle Danka, came into the conversation. I told him about Alice Howard, hoping he would ask me if she were as big as Alice Harford, and then determined to rouse him, I said the great love affair of my life was a small, thin woman. Still, he did not answer. If a woman be sensual. Beauty is better than bumping, he answered with a laugh. And it seemed that we were to have one of our erstwhile conversations about art and that Jim would draw forth a canvas and say this has all the beauties of Raphael and other beauties besides but he seemed to have lost nearly all his interest in painting allowing me however to search around the room and discover behind the sofa a new version of Kane Shielding's his wife from Wild Beasts and I spoke of the design of the conception of the movement of the man about to hurl a spear of the grey line approaching him from the behind a rock he took up his palette but forgot to roar like a lion and when he laid it aside he did not sing Il Bellin and Chela Mort, nor did he tell me that the Pinky had a more beautiful voice than Jenny Lind, and when we walked across the garden and he bade me goodbye at the gate, I felt that he had worn out himself, as well as his clothes, his hopes, his talent, his enthusiasm for life, all were gone. An echo remained, an echo which I did not try to reawaken. I never saw him quite, I never saw him again. He was for me but an occasional thought, until one day I found myself sitting next to a, next a showily dressed woman in luncheon, the daughter of Jim's landlady, and it was from her I learned that Jim had died about two years back in Park Road. She said he had become quite a hermit in the later years of his life, never leaving the house except for a stroll around the garden, painting always, I said. A perplexed look came into her face, which I attributed to the fact that she did not know whether the pictures were works of art or nothing at all, and I asked myself whether suddenly what Jim's death might have been been for a man so individual as Jim should die in an individual death, but my imagination did not succeed in conjuring up any worthy death for him. Perhaps Turgenev might have failed too, though indeed Jim's death is very like a Turgenev death, only a little more wonderful. That nature often invents better than we, but even than Turgenev, who would have seen that Jim must be killed by a lion. But even Turgenev could not have seen how this could be managed without sending him out to Africa to hunt lions, which would be an invention only one degree more stupid than the supposition that the keeper had left one of the lion's cages open in the zoological gardens and that the animal had escaped and climbed over the wall of the park road, killing Jim after tearing a hole through a large canvas in the cane, shielding his wife from wild bears behind, which painter had hidden himself. Turgenev would not have thought of a snow lion, but nature did, and one day as snow was lying several deep... Around the house, she inspired Jim to make good his theory that a lion always lies with one paw tucked under him and never with the four paws stretched out like Landseer's lion in Trafalgar Square. He had always been saying this was so, but his landlady and landlady, his landlord or landlady, did not wish him to start sculpture in his house. But now there was snow at every door and he began to pile it up and when all the snow in the garden was exhausted the neighbours sent their snow in wheelbarrows and he continued to pile up hundredweight upon hundredweight until his line assumed almost Egyptian proportions rising above the surrounding walls attracting the eyes of the handsome cabmen who drew up their horses to admire and suggest that the lion should be sent to the British Museum. Perhaps the governor might have a refrigerator built for him as a remark which caused some amusement to the dancing master, his wife and daughter and to Jim but it was not thought worthwhile writing to the governor of the museum on the subject. The suggestion, why don't you have him photographed coming next day from the top of the omnibus seemed more practical and the maid servant was asked to run round to the photographer and the evening was spent counting the number of copies that would be required. Each neighbour who had sent his snow must get one and before bedtime it was noticed that the brightness of the stars predicted a fine day but during the night clouds gathered in the morning the garden was enveloped in a white mist a messenger came from the photographer to say he could do nothing that day and the following day he failed to keep his appointment and in a drizzle of rain jim set to work to patch up his melting masterpiece the next day the photographer arrived and got what he hoped would prove a very good impression but everybody wanted a half plate and jim worked on among the wet snow, Florence begging him to put on an overcoat and a stronger pair of boots, but he tramped about in his shoes, and the next day he was crouching over the fire, and when the doctor heard the story of the lion, he threw up his hands. How a man of his age could be foolish enough to risk his life was such nonsense, and do you tell me he always goes out with an overcoat? 
I call tomorrow and give him oxygen if required. The thaw continued during the night and Jim and his lion dissolved together. My f- dear first friend, I muttered and springboard from whence I jumped into life and art. I'm going to my Monet, I asked myself if Jim would have been able to discern better than A.E. the beauty of the evanescent willows rising out and vanishing into the mist and the clever man and knew a great deal more than anybody gave him credit for knowing he all talked nonsense about his own genius but he knew he was talking nonsense and his nonsense helped him to disguise his failure from himself for a moment he should have been born in Venice about the year 1680 his talent would have come to fruition in those years and Van Dyck would have painted his portrait that just then the servant opened the door to ask me if I were at home to Mr. Hugh Lane Yes, and a moment after there came into the hall a tall, thin young man talking so fast that I gathered with difficulty there must be a great many pictures in Irish country houses which he would like to exhibit in Dublin. If anybody cares for pictures, I contrived to interject, and he sat twisting and untwisting his legs, linking and unlinking his hands, his talk beginning to bore me a little, and I could detect any asceticism in him. Only nervous as I'd have run a show. Your brother, I said, called here a few days ago. To prepare me for your visit, and he said you were going to revive Irish painting. I came here to revive Irish language. It existed once upon a time, but Irish painting? Lane interrupted me, admitting that the men who had painted in Ireland at the end of the 18th century were merely reflections of Sir John Stuart and Romney, but your brother. Without noticing my interruption, he continued telling me that in the last fortnight he had been travelling through Ireland, visiting the whole country houses and obtaining premises for many people to lend their pictures. Now your name among the list of patrons in the exhibition, but why are you giving yourself all this trouble? What is your object? Well, you see, I am Lady Gregory's nephew and must be doing something for Ireland, striking a blow, I said. A bewildered look quickly repressed, however, revealed to me that he did not understand my remark. You don't speak with a brogue. Your brother said you didn't. How is that? He was just a little hysterical laughing without stopping to explain why he had done so. And my brogue looked around the room and searched at pictures worth borrowing and decided upon his two, the portrait of Rachel and Cortrude on the small constable. He said he hoped I could try to influence Sir Thornley Stoker in his favour and he would like to print Sir Thornley's name among the patrons of the forthcoming exhibition, the exhibition designed to be an advancement of the art on Ireland. I gave Lane my promise that he should be invited to the palace. A nickname for Sir Thornley's house, so full of what was it of beautiful things, but Sir Thornley could not be persuaded, and my affection for him was strained to the honest about a persistent speaking lane and London picture dealer who had come to Ireland to see what he could pick up, or perhaps he's on the lookout for a post in the museum. I have told you, Sir Thornley, that he is in Lady Gregor's nephew and would like something from Ireland. She, that should be sufficient. He growled and muttered that Lane might tell us that he was a great expert, but what proof had we of it? And the old doctor grew as grumpy as if he had been speaking to a bone, said, oh, My dear Thornley, we do not learn anything that we did not know before and I sketched out the life history of a chef who had before discovering a vocation and wandered from one trade to another trying all until one night in the kitchen two ducks were roasting before a fire the gravy running out of the backsides and deeply moved he had stood immersed in a great joy but what he has that got to do with Lane Lane is Lady Gregory's nephew you have told me that before you have said that before well, of course if you interrupt me I was going to tell you that Lady Gregory told me herself that the family had thought of all kinds of professions suitable for Hugh, but his heart was not in any of them, and they were beginning to feel like a little anxious when one day, as they were sitting down to lunch, was there a duck for luncheon? No, he caught sight of the fold of the guy Gregory's dress, a tailor man found from Paris. It was always a pleasure to the woman to hear the groan of mine, but there was a seriousness in Hugh's appreciation of the hang of the skirt and a studied regard in his eyes, which caused her a moment's perplexity. And when they rose from the table, to, he stood watching her as she crossed the room of course the skirt fitted rather nicely but in the same afternoon she had occasion to her go to her bedroom and her surprise found her wardrobe open and hugh trying on her skirts before the glass hugh doesn't it seem to you aunt augusta that this skirt is a little too dull full sorry during the evening he spoke of some premises in conduit street but tailing was only a passing thought and the next day they heard of Hugh was that he had gone into Colangley's shop to learn the business of picture dealing. Nature is always expected, Thornley, bounding about like a monkey. Na- sorry, nature is always unexpected, Thornley, bounding about like a monkey. And it may be that Lane sprang from tailor maids right into Salvatore Rosa and up again to Georginie and Titian. But I, if I had to choose Lane as the hero of a novel or a play, I should pre- Proceed more regularly, a transition would be necessary. A little shop in St. James's down some court long ago, swept away by an enterprising builder in the novel. There certainly would be a little shop with a window full of old fans and bits of silver. Just the kind of shop that you would hang about every afternoon when you came back from the hospital, and I should place Lane in a little den out of which he would come to show you some paste, old paste. I have it. Thornley's 
cameos and old pace would be the steps whereby Lane mounted from Taylor Maids to Salvatore Rosa and then on to whom did I say Thornley? Georgioine. The old doctor muttered, laughing in his beard. Two years, two years is long enough. I was five years walking the hospitals. It was long enough for Lane when he left Colnaghi's shop and took a lodging in Bury Street. He was able to buy and sell pictures so successfully that in two years he had put together, I think he told me, £10,000. Yet you say he is not a dealer, and the old doctor continued to growl by the fireside. He is a collector who weeds out his collection. Let us call him a weeder, and let us never speak of the lavatory, but of the cloakroom or the toilet room, and let us avoid the word lodger, for he is extinct. Uh, or, like the phoenix, he has risen from his ashes and become a paying guest. Petticoat bodice is taboo, and bodice, even bodice, one of the beautifulest words in the language, has yielded to the detestable corsage, and the journalist speaks of women as petite, thinking that petite suggests refinement. Naked is a word that nobody of taste would think of using, unclothed or undraped. No reasonable man or woman would object to meeting this sentence in a novel. I would give all my worldly wealth to see Venus walk undraped from her bath. Bath. The novelist might even write, I would give all, give difficulty to say, I would give, sorry, I would give all my worldly wealth to see Elizabeth Hawkins walk undraped from her bath. But if he were to write, I would give all my worldly wealth to see Elizabeth Hawkins walk naked from her bath, he would be dubbed a very gross writer by the newspapers. Though it is difficult to say how morality gains by the substitution of unclothed or undraped for naked, and easy to see that literature dies in these substitutions, who would ever think of asking a lady for the bill of fare? Even in the second-class restaurants, the word bill of fare has been dropped. We read now the menu. So, you see, Lane is quite in the fashion when he calls himself a collector. If you would only meet him... You would be converted, not to euphemisms, but to Lane. He has such, got such pretty ways. When you ask him if he is going to sell a picture, he will say, Don't talk to me about selling. I can't bear to part with my pictures. One of these days I shall have a house and shall want pictures, and immediately the conversation will slide away and you'll find yourself listening to a long tale of a collection of pictures which he intends to present at cost price to some provincial gallery he is all for art and you who have been talking art and buying beautiful things all your life now repudiate the one man who comes to ireland to revive the art of painting it never existed in ireland never mind it will be revived all the same he is a dealer. He has made, according to you, £10,000 in two years, and a dealer never will miss the chance of picking up something, and you'll find that he will pick up something. There's no use talking any more. I've spent a very pleasant evening. Good night, Thornley. Good night. Well, you'll see, were his last words, and he was very sarcastic when it came, knowing that Lane had brought bought a large lancret from Sir Algernon Coote at the close of the ex- exhibition. And when I went in to smoke a cigar with him, he referred to this deal with extraordinary bitterness. I could not see what ground of complaint he had against Lane. Sir Algernon Coote, I often said, was glad to get seven or eight hundred, perhaps thousand for his picture. What concern is it of yours the price the picture fetches afterwards? He growled in his armchair, averring that Lane had no right to ask Sir Algernon Coote to lend him a picture, and then to buy it from him. A most extraordinary proposition, I said. If nobody is to make a profit, there can be no buying or selling. Yourself made a profit upon your sale of Wedgwood. Sir Thornley did not think that this was quite the same thing, and I said, pooh-pooh. We had just begun to forget Lane when we heard that he ran across the Tipolo de Ostend and picked up another picture in Antwerp, and these pictures and Sir Algernon Coote's laying it had been paid £17,000 by Dunroll Row. He had not taken it all out in cash. Lane's genius lies in swapping. It is a bold man that dares to swap with Sturinel Rail, and Lane's dares everything, and he got Monet's portrait, and Monet's on Gonzalez, probably cheaper than a private buyer would have gotten it. 
On the plea that it was going into a permanent exhibition, it came over with a number of impressionist pictures lent by different people, Monet Piazzaro, Renoir, Sicily, Berth, Mousseau, and the Impressionist School. And for what objects Sir Thornley cried to found a gallery in modern art, again, I said myself to explain Sir Lanny Thornley without a writing we couldn't understand what he thought of Lane's instinct with money and also instinct of spending his money into worked upon art. Nobody had ever met Thornley desired art purely Lane and I and many people with many art, money, art, but in general they spend the motor cars, women, cooks, and valets, but Lane spends hardly anything upon himself. His whole life is absorbing around and he would. Not have been able to gratify his passion if you did not make any money while you will be reconciled to him. Why would will you, why will you accept him for what he is? I said again and again. But he remained grumpily, doggedly, refusing to become a member of a committee, consenting, however, to visit the exhibition, not being able to resist my descriptions of the portrait of Mademoiselle Gonzalez and the interior musician and other pictures. A wonderful exhibition it was organised by Lane, who rushed about Dublin from one end to the other begging for everybody to come to his exhibition, gathering up the ladies into groups, giving them all something to do, telling one that she must collect subscriptions to buy a certain picture, another one that she must play the piano for him, another would oblige him by playing or trying to play, it did not matter which, a violin solo, the cruise sonata, or anything else she liked, he discovered a young gentleman who sang comic songs very well for the sake of art, he was asked to sing. Anybody who could write at all was asked to write letters to the papers. Everybody in Dublin was swept into exhibition, and as soon as the recipients began to decline, Lane was again devising some new method whereby they might be revised. Revived. So far, I had reinsisted, resisted, and come one evening to ask me to write the article. No, ten thousand times no. Lane laughs and suggests the lecture. I'm only in Dublin. No, no, Monet, Sicily, no, Pissarro. I knew them all. No, well, nothing's Lane. You tempt me. When will you be able to give the lecture? A terror came upon me, and I started. When one has to speak for an hour, when an hour and ten minutes, an hour and fifteen minutes, that would make fortnightly articles at the very least. Oh, Lane, I'll begin the advertised lecture tomorrow. You have four days to prepare it. Four days. And Lane, who <clears throat> was always in a hurry, bade me goodbye. Night. Good night abruptly. Alright, that's the chapter. What a... F- f- shit. What a load of shit. <laughs> what a f- load of shit. Oh my god. What a... F- lo- what a fucking load of shit. Of just insufferable shit. That's the dumbest shit I've ever... Experience, let alone read. Oh my god. Um, thanks for listening. I suppose. See you tomorrow.